welcome to Breaking the Chain, the leadership series. I am your host, Terentia Brown. In this podcast, we will focus on developing our emotional intelligence as leaders. We will pull back the curtain on the leadership journey experienced by leaders who have inspired and developed countless successful individuals. Welcome everyone to episode six of the leadership series. Our guest today is Lamia Fikrat, Strategy and Business Development Consultant at Abelius. She is also a coach for entrepreneurs and an advocate for women and girls in STEM. Lamia is an inspiring leader who has made an impact in many rooms where she has been underestimated from the moment she walked in as a result of unconscious bias. I loved hearing her stories about how her parents developed her emotional intelligence from a young age, which has helped her challenge those biases and deliver impact wherever she goes. So welcome, Lamia. Thank you for joining us to talk about this topic of unconscious bias and, and how we as leaders can be more aware of its impact on our daily lives. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Great. So one of the most popular modules actually on our leadership development program for emerging leaders is called vulnerability and unconscious bias. So we actually paired these two topics together because we believe that vulnerability is needed in situations where our biases show up and adversely impacts ourselves or someone else. And we all grow up with various biases based on our background, our culture, where we grew up, and the experiences that we go through. So the true heart of a leader is someone who can say sorry for saying something or thinking in a way that is biased against someone else. We actually connect with people through our vulnerabilities. And as the term suggests, these biases are as unconscious as riding a bike or driving a car. So how can we become more aware of our biases? But before we get stuck into the topic for today, we'd just love to get to know you a little bit better, Lamia. So please, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you started your leadership journey, and then maybe some of the leadership positions you have held over the years? Thank you again, Therensha. I'm really keen to speak about this topic. When I was young, I was actually naturally drawn to STEM topics. I really loved maths, physics, uh, engineering overall, and I ended up doing a master's degree in engineering in France. I grew up actually in Morocco, where I'm originally from. And right after finishing my studies, I decided to join a consulting firm, Roland Berger, in Paris, which is a strategy consulting firm where I mainly focused on strategy and business development topics for listed companies and investment funds. And then back in 2015, I was actually headhunted by the largest investment fund in Africa to continue in strategy and business development, but to focus on a specific sector, which is renewable energy and um, sustainability overall. So I ended up contributing and developing large wind farms, solar farms, water desalination projects across Africa and the Middle East, which was pretty exciting, all the more because the continent really needs you know, supply and needed actually this technology and still needs it. 
And actually, in 2018, I realized that my skills after working for a while in strategy growth was, in a way, I would say a scarce skill. Most entrepreneurs that I met with or top managers felt uh, alone or lonely on those topics. So I decided to act as an interim executive manager kind of a right hand and focus on SMEs, startups, but also private companies backed by investment funds. So what I basically do is join the team blending. I um, focus on helping them to identify new opportunities in terms of growth, sales and partnerships. And I average, I say, four to six months. And I really, really love doing that because it's, um, I think it reflects in a way my profile. I, I like to think of myself as kind of a thinker, but also doer. I really love Mm -hmm. to craft, imagine how it's supposed to work to reach an objective and a goal. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love doing it, being part of the action part and being on the field, because this is where it gets really exciting because we're talking about managing resources, dealing with obstacles on a daily basis, rethinking the vision, uh, making sure that it's actually aligned, that everybody's committed to it and really believes in it. And in parallel, I uh, was drawn in 2015 to um, a model that I really, really like, which uh, actually empowers people on a daily basis, either in professional level or personal level, towards uh, managing in a way their biases and their stress, because stress is kind of a reaction, an impulsive reaction to what happens around. And it's called the process calm model. It was built back in the 70s by Dr. Uh, Keller. Taby Keller, who's a psychologist, and it was actually asked by NASA to think about a methodology to uh, help astronauts when they're stuck together in a very small area (laughs) to deal with each other. And ever since, I think more than one million people have been trained on this model. Big companies like IBM, Microsoft, Apple, etc., encourage managers to work on that. So I took a year in parallel of my work to train on this model and in a way to train myself to develop this kind of benevolence, mm. but also to help people that I coach or my own clients to deal on a daily basis on their biases, how they perceive the world and how they react to each other. I think it uh, it kind of involves self-control, but I'm, well, I'll be happy like to, to share a bit more about that. I think um, as we're talking today about unconscious bias, it's definitely aligned with this kind of vision and being a better version of yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, when we first uh, had a chat, that was something that really stood out for me, that there are resources that can help us to be more aware. And I think it's just about being exposed to that. So we're really grateful that you are here today to share and just enlighten our community about, you know, different resources that they can use to be able to educate themselves in this particular topic. So one of the other questions we love asking our guests is what is your biggest fear or what was your biggest fear when you started your leadership journey? And then how did you work on overcoming it? At the risk of maybe sounding a bit cliche, I have a quite a millennial fear. <laughs> you know, I, I, I grew up in Morocco. I'm the second generation of my, both my family who so has the opportunity to go to school. So my mm. parents were the first ones. Uh, when my grandparents got married, either my mom's side or 
that side, they um, decided to move from a, a very farther region <laughs> to, to cities because their goal was for their kids to have the opportunity to go to school, to have a better life. Mm. So my, my parents grew up with a lot of pressure that they actually transmitted to us. <laughs> so in a way, I yes. grew up hearing that if I do my best at school, if I do my best at a, on a daily basis with everybody else, then a kind of um, a dream uh, would be handed to me. Then I'll be mm. by the age of 30 having like this amazing home, a family, a nice position in an amazing job that I've dreamed of, etc. <laughs> but obviously when I started working, all those dreams were shattered and I quickly realized that life is not that simple. All yes. the more because I think our context is a bit different from the previous generations. Mm. And I started very quickly to become impatient and frustrated. Uh, I noticed, I think the first time I was really, really shocked, I think I was 28 and I really started noticing people having a very different behavior when I interviewed for positions, when I negotiated bonuses or asked for promotions or more responsibility. I had even a couple of HR people and managers telling me, oh, you're a risk resource (laughs) because you are this specific age where we expect you to get pregnant and to be less committed to work, which is a complete absurdity and Mm. and unfairness. But I decided actually... After I think after a year of being, you know, receiving those shocking slaps in the face, I decided that it was not my dream anymore. And Mm. I'm just still trying to figure out what my dream would be. But on the meantime, I'm really focusing on the present. I make sure that on a daily basis, I wake up, I really love what I do. I really choose Mm. the people I'm surrounded with. I'm Mm. proud of what I do do and the added value that I have around me. And I take care Mm. of myself, regardless of, you know, all those aggressions or microaggressions that I get on a daily basis. Just keep on moving mm-hmm. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's so good to hear because, you know, I had very similar experiences, you know, where there's the fears of the past get get passed down. But it's so good to hear that from place of self-awareness, you can make certain decisions and, and certain choices not to go down that, you know, same path or feel that weight on your shoulders. Yeah. Um, yeah, so sorry. yeah, <laughs> really good to hear. Really good to hear. So as we step into our topic for today, I would love to just hear how you would define the term unconscious bias. So many people ask me to actually clarify this term. So it will be great for us to actually define the term before understanding some of the challenges. Mm. You're right. I think the first step of making sure that we talk about the same concept is in, is, in, is important. For me, yes. and the an unconscious bias is a simple stereotype that we have on a certain group of people, a certain category of people that we've identified. And there are, I think, two principles behind that. The first one, that it's a belief. It's a strong belief that is uh, that has been teach or taught or learned that we've carried through all our existence. And the second one is that it's subconscious. Mm. So it's not necessarily controlled immediately. And for me, unconscious bias is something that makes us human because it's each one of us has cliches or believes a certain 
thinks or makes shortcuts when they behave with or they encounter a certain group of people, a certain category of people. And we just simply adapt our behavior or behave accordingly because we expect the other person uh, yes. to be a certain way, which creates an, a kind of a, a chain uh, of interpretations, of anticipated interpretations, mm -hmm. which are sometimes unfair because mm -hmm. we end up having what we call kind of a miscommunication because we ex expect the, the, per the person in front of us to react in such a way. And this is the reason why we chose those words or we did this action, took this action. And it creates uh, confusion <laughs> for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say it. Um, yeah, those three, those three ideas regarding that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm completely aligned with that definition. And um, it's amazing how when you start defining the term, you start also seeing these biases show up because now it's it's much more clearer in your mind. So thank you for explaining that um, to start with. So there are, you know, different biases that we experience in some shape or form. And the common ones that people face on a daily basis are either related to gender, to race, to education, you know, to, to name a few. But one of the biases that I experienced early on in my career was the bias about introverted people. So people assumed that when you are quiet, you will not make a good leader. So what types of biases have you seen personally in the workplace? So many, <laughs> and I still like see so many every day. I think it also it's also linked to the fact that I'm I consider myself maybe more aware. I am the kind of person who's more detail oriented and who observes a lot. So uh, I need sometimes to um, to go beyond that and stop, you know, identifying each thing or each comment or each gesture because it, it's a lot to deal with. It takes a lot of energy. But I would say, obviously, on a work in the workplace, the first obvious one that I was really shocked to witness, but also to live myself, is um, the behavior towards young people, young colleagues. So this is this kind of a belief that uh, young people are not actually as committed as older generations. They don't know what they're saying, and they have like too much energy. They should like just cool down and be more patient. <laughs> which is a, such a cliche because I used to work in, in, in some groups where older colleagues would every day make a comment about that. Like, just cool down. You're still young. You still have like your life. So just be more patient, which is completely uh, absurd because they end up uh, in a way humiliating the person and just shutting down her energy. She's totally wrong because it's just uh, killing her motivation which is terrible. The second one that I obviously see is towards women and the ones that, a lot of them shock me, but the ones that I really don't understand is even from male colleagues that pretend they believe in equality and they are feminists, they always expect women to be people pleasers mm. all the time. Like even in negotiations, women are expected to take the first step to be the one who concedes, to be the kindest one, to smile at every comment, to to take the notes, to play secretary. Mm. Why? Why would they think about that? I think it's everything is linked to the fact that when they were young, maybe the maternal figure 
was obviously the most present and girls are expected to be kind, to share their toys, to be helpful, to be careful towards everybody's feelings, etc. Which is terrible because it actually creates a lot of anger, I think. Most men figures or, or men at work expect women to protect their ego and to be careful with their feelings, which is not their responsibility, actually. I also had another one. I really love when you spoke about introverts. In my case, I've mostly noticed that people who ask questions are also believed not to have an opinion, Mm. which is a terrible, terrible (laughs) bias. When somebody asks a question, it doesn't mean that they don't know the answer or they don't have an opinion or they're not sure. They're just asking for other people's point of view. And it's such a short-minded behavior and bias. It's absolutely terrible. Mm. Uh, It's absolutely terrible. I think it's it's something that maybe we grew up with because I think it echoes to when we were in class and a classroom and we only raise our hand and ask questions when we don't understand. But in real life, I can be interested in what you're doing. I can ask questions about your opinion on project I'm dealing with. I can ask uh, if you have a contact, what you think, what would you do in such a situation? But it doesn't mean that I don't have my own vision and opinion. And I think it's terrible because it leads to people censoring themselves, which is Mm. terrible. Yes. Yes. I think these are yeah some of the, the ones that I really see and I wanted to share today, but there are so many other ones. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I love I love that you've shared, you know, these these things that we see and experience on a daily basis, right? But we very much only bring forward the ones that I mentioned, the age, the gender, but there's so many other things that are happening, so many other biases. Um, um, so can you share some examples where these were directly linked to you? How did you personally navigate uh, through some of these situations? I still have to deal with so many of them. Some people call them microaggressions, but I, for me, these are like racist comments or <laughs> complete biases and stereotypes. Very often when I used to work more on the energy and sustainability sector, I was, you know, the only woman in a 200 people conference room. <laughs> and I'd be asked, oh, can you get me a coffee with two sugars? Where's the coat room? <laughs> can you turn the AC on? <laughs> because they just thought that I was here to deal with the organization and part of the staff wow. and not here to speak on a panel or to be here for my job. This happened very often and specifically I had a very, very awkward and funny situations when I was was project director. I was dealing with an 850 megawatt project. We were talking about $1.2 billion wind farm project. Mm -hmm. And I was the director and I was receiving foreign partners from Japan. And I was like, hey, how are you? We always had like chats through email, etc. But they never thought that Lamia would be women. Mm. And so I, <laughs> I got them to the large, you know, guest conference room, starting the meeting and they were like, yeah, can I have a cup of tea and me? I want a coffee. Can you turn the AC on? I was like, sure. Yeah, I can ask the person to get it. That's fine. So I went, I left to get something out of my office and they came back to the room. And when I started the meeting, I remember their face. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, that's her. 
<laughs> but you know, I try, I try to to take it as um, yeah, to be as benevolent as possible, mm-hmm. because it's really embedded in how they think. Yes. So I don't want to be the angry woman because it will only justify their cliches. Yes. So unfortunately, when you when you have to deal with those kind of biases as a victim, mm. the more natural or impulsive you react, the more you encourage people and you comfort them in their cliches. So yeah. I really all I really need to be in self-control, very calm, to be very diplomatic, which is completely unfair because it's not my problem, it's theirs. Yes. I also yes. had like um, a, a very weird situation. I was dealing with an amazing, huge project. We're talking about global project, and the management refused to officially appoint me to send you know the official email saying, "Okay, she's been appointed and promoted as project director," because they expected me to be just grateful. Because, and I was told that way that I that, that I should behave like that, that I should be grateful because I had this responsibility as a young woman. Blah blah blah. And why mm-hmm. would I? Why would I ask for an email for an official, you know, moment or a tilting event and for everybody to say, oh, let's clap for Lamia. She did this. She did a great job. Yes. And I even had a person hinting to the fact that, you know what, seriously, you should be grateful. Plus, I think a lot of men would be hurt at, at, the, at the company because they would, you know, have to face this reality that you're doing better. And that wow. you've been granted the opportunity to be appointed. Mm. And I think part of those biases are encouraged by people who remain silent or who don't take the right management decisions. Mm. And in that case, I did mm. what I had to do. I asked for it. I, I was like, okay, just explain to me why. What's the mm. reason behind it? Why wouldn't you like do it? And uh, I did my best. I did my best. I think the the key points that you raised was around the education. And then there's something called confirmation bias, which is something that we teach about. So not confirming, you know, the cliches or what people believe, right? It's really now shifting and changing the perspective for them, right? And getting them to to think about it rather than going on the defense or going asking questions that are very confronting to ask questions to get them to think about their own thinking and where is it coming from. One of the things that really supports people in being able to confront and challenge is self-awareness. So I truly believe that, you know, self-awareness is really the key to breaking the bias, right? And, you know, we can't control what others say and how they think, but we can control what we say and what we think. That is something that I've always thought about. So are you aware of some of your own biases and how do you challenge yourself to go against your bias when you realize that your bias is actually impacting the way you are behaving or thinking? Yeah, I think you're totally right. um, And I I would also add that the more discriminator you are or the more biases you you have to deal with on a daily basis the more self-aware you get Uh, the more you try to censor yourself or you try to think twice before saying something or doing something and for me I have like two I identify like two big biases that I'm I'm one of them I'm still struggling with but 
the first one. I think I, I moved on. I'll share it with you. So I, I, I used to believe that older managers are not flexible people. They're not open to new ideas. They're, mm. That most of them are would say, oh, this is how we used to do it and this is how it should be, you know. Yes. And I think it was a simple uh, uh, generalization of the statistics that I had around. Mm. So the older the managers or board members I had to deal with um, uh, were mostly like that. So I ended up concluding that everybody was like that, which is just terrible. Yes. (laughs) Which is terrible. And I would be like super excited and gladly surprised when one of them would be open to something groundbreaking or think out of the box, Mm -hmm. which is, which is terrible, actually. I'm not proud of thinking that, but it's, um, it was a bias that I really used to have and I would be underestimating the flexibility and the willingness to innovate, innovate with all the managers. Wow. And the second one that I'm still struggling with, and I'll just be blind and say it, is that I always expect the women at workplace to be my allies. Wow. I always expect them to help me, to help each other. So um, I think that's wrong because it's a kind of a sexist way of what I, what revolts me and what I live as a victim, as people expect me to be uh, kinder, people pleaser, to smile all the time, to be available to help, to overadapt, etc. But in my case, as I believe that we have so many problems to deal with, so many obstacles as women, I necessarily concluded that all women should help each other, you know. Naturally. <laughs> All should lift each other. I, I even see it like a kind of a principle, you know. When I witness women not supporting another leader at the workplace, I expected her to do it per default because she didn't have to think. She was seeing a woman who was asking for more responsibility or who's asking for her rights, for a raise, etc. She should support her without raising any question. Mm-hmm. And I'm still struggling with it with this because I believe that it's um, part of a broader debate related to equality and to mm-hmm. survival in a way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's fair, on the other hand, to believe that all the women that are the immediate on a, at a client place should help each other and should support mm-hmm. each other and vote for each other when they're asking for a new manager or a new leader. But it's uh, it's complicated. I think this one is very hard. It is. Because it's, it's a contradiction, actually. <laughs> In it a way. is. Mm. It, it is a tough one. But I, I, I thank you for, for raising it. I think, you know, we also place so much emphasis on on that particular topic that we all, yes, we all should stick together. But actually, you know, we we also need males as allies. It should be we should be looking for people as allies. So regardless of the gender, it is, you know, who who's in our corner, who is supporting our idea, who is of the same thinking, you know, connecting with like-minded individuals as opposed mm. to saying, because you are female, you need to be on on my side. Yeah. And and another another thought that I really loved when we first had a chat was around the story around how your parents started developing your EQ from an early age. 
I'd love for you to just share that story with with our listeners and why did you why did they believe that this was important for you and does a higher EQ help us to be more aware of our own biases and how can we improve you know our self-awareness in this area so just that topic of self-awareness and and EQ yeah, I think I mentioned to you like my uh, kind of a summarized childhood story where my parents are the ones who, uh, when they were younger, actually, they started like reading books on EQ and thinking, going beyond what they were taught at school about uh, subjects, topics, exams, etc. I think they were really, both of them, fascinated by how people think and how people behave. Even though none of them actually has studied psychology, my mom is a French professor and my dad is an engineer, so none of them actually went deep down to psychology. But they, I think when we were really, really young, they, in the way they behaved or they introduced us to people, they showed us, okay, this is how we should talk to people, we should say this and that, etc. Naturally uh, led us with our sisters to consider that maybe even more important to IQ. Mm. In a way, um, every time we witness a situation or a conversation, I would always remember my parents just listening first, just listening and decoding, going beyond gestures, beyond words. And I remember there's a kind of a, of a, an expression that my mom always uses is she's like, okay, but just be inside the mind of the other person. Why do you think she asked you, how are you this way? Can you like go beyond? Don't you think that it's uh, uh, if you decode her tone of voice or her eyes, how she looked at you or her hand gestures, it, maybe she's asking for help. Maybe she's not okay. Or maybe she noticed something on you. So beyond being a good listener, the second key is to be a great observer. Wow. To be very detail-oriented and to decode everything like very, very quickly, which is the third skill. (laughs) To be a quick (laughs) thinker is kind of a, it's in a way kind of a rational way of dealing with people or dealing with behaviors. It's kind of a robotic taking inputs, analyzing data, and then behaving accordingly. Yeah. But it's um, it's very 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 helpful, and the, and on top of that, the top skill is benevolence. It's mm. always always imagining and believe strongly believe that there's something that pushes the person, that even gives her an excuse or pushes you to understand and forgive. And I think it's also very linked maybe to culture and religion. I think there's a a strong pillar there (laughs) that, okay, the post-com model explains in a way that, um, you know, it's it's really really related to to psychology and childhood. So it says that very often if you're dealing with somebody who quite often deals with uh, angry bursts, it means that when they were a kid, they were not allowed to express their emotions. So when they grow up, they always like explode and start insulting each other. And then half an hour later, they feel so sorry and they're people pleasers, you know, this kind of contradiction. And I think mm-hmm. being self-aware of what kind of personality or main behaviors or patterns you have and people around you have helps you 
just be um, benevolent and forgive others. I love that. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that. That model is something to also reflect on one, your own personality, but what are some other personalities to look out for, right? So that awareness of, of what someone else may be walking through the doors with, right? And, and I love that you said that the foundation is that benevolence and forgiveness because people could be going through certain things or people may not even realize that they have said something that is offending you or hurting you because it's part of their normal but it's not part of your exactly. normal. So it's about educating them and challenging what the normal is, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you speak, it's how you say it that people actually remember. Exactly. The, the words, it, the gestures, uh, the, the face, tone. Uh, the yes. tone, everything, your eyes, if you look down, up and down, everything. Yes. It's, a whole, it's a whole set of data. <laughs> It's a whole yeah. set of data. Um, I was reading recently around uh, the topic of communication and they say, you know, 100% of communication consists of 7% of what you say, 38% of how you say it, and 55% of body language, which yeah. means there's exactly. so much that is, you know, the unsaid or, you know, that 55% is how you connect with the people through your body language um, yeah. for them to truly listen and understand what you have to say. So we are almost at the end of the episode and we really loved hearing your stories because I, I love telling stories because I think this is how we all learn. But before we wrap up, what could be one small action that our listeners can take away and get started on this journey of truly understanding their unconscious bias? I think a couple of steps can be done. The first one is to, the easiest one, is to ask around oneself. You just ask to your, your close friends and family members if some one day they were surprised when you made a comment or had a specific gesture because they will very often identify like the the biggest, you know, shocking biases you might have. This helps. And uh, it helps if you can do it in a safe place, uh, your workplace. If a colleague that you trust can tell you, yeah, I, I notice quite often that this is how you do, this is how you react. This is really helpful. So first big step, identifying either by yourself on your own, but I recommend to ask help around around you the second one is also to take just a piece of paper i think and write down all the biases that people have against you i think it really helps because it puts into perspective because i think um we often feel that we are entitled to play more the victim than the accuser mm. so when we are faced with our own biases, it's not a comfortable situation. And we are, we tend to, I think, to di diminish them or to say that it's not a real one and to justify and find an explanation, to explain that the context was different, blah, blah, blah. So, but so this comparison, I think, is very important to say, okay, this is what I really believe. Again, this kind of group of people, and I'm convinced because uh, this, this, and that. And compare it to when, what you believe. And I think even playing a game of counting the number of lines that you're writing 
you are supposed, I think, to have as many biases against people that they have against you. So if you just confess like two or three and <laughs> and have a, a whole two pages or three pages of all the biases people have against you, that it may be, um, it's, uh, it's maybe unfair, but it's the first step. And I would say that the, the third one is just to try to be benevolent and work on self-control. Mm. Always, always prefer to navigate than confront and escalate. That is mm. a rule. It takes a lot of energy. It takes practice. It takes a lot of practice on a daily basis. Uh, but you need, and I, that's my last point, to find a way to evacuate this energy. Mm. You know, there's a kind of a sexist cliche, which is actually based on, a, on the, the, the normal education that we have towards sports. Boys should not cry, should not complain, etc. Mm. And, you know, some health statistics say that most men, when they reach more than 40 years old, they're very likely to have heart attacks because of all the repressed feelings that they had. Interesting. They don't, you know, they don't. When something happens, they just move on, and uh, they don't necessarily, you know, fight back uh, or say that they feel hurt, etc. Mm. Or you know, voice their real, genuine emotions. But on the other hand, so the recommendation, my recommendation would be to find a way, something that really helps you get perspective and move on, mm. something that helps you to let go. Mm. So you don't accumulate all those bad feelings and this resentment in you. Because self-control is control, but then uh, it, I think it triggers something in your body, mm. beyond your emotions. Something happens in your body, uh, uh, we're talking about heart palpitations, then your nervous system, etc. And you need to evacuate. So for me, for example, it's just sports. I really love hiking. I walk a lot. So it really helps kind of a tire in me and put in perspective towards the day. If something bad happens to me, uh, I just go and go for a run or go for a walk. And then it's, you know, um, I review or <laughs> what happened during the day in my mind. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's his problem. It's not mine. <laughs> Let's just move on. Okay, this happens. Yeah. This is an anecdote for the rest of my life, but that's it. You know, just find your own solution to move on uh, towards your unconscious bias and think twice before saying something or doing something. Mm. Such great advice. You know, thank you, Lamia, so much for, you know, your invaluable insights on the topic. We really appreciate that you've taken some time out of your busy schedule to just come and share, um, I think most importantly about your own experiences and also being vulnerable enough to share about your own biases. You know, I think that's the first step is to acknowledge that we all have them in some shape or form and then to take that introspective look and, and really, yeah, to move forward, put the, hold the mirror up first before pointing the finger. Thank you so so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk about this, and I um I think it's um I think it's a universal topic that will continue as long as we are humans uh, live in different lives. We we'll always have those biases. The only thing that we can change is how we deal with them. 
Yes. Do we disregard them? Do we uh, face them? Do we teach others? Yes. And do we accept to have difficult conversations? But it's been real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me. Oh, so good, Lamia. Thank you everyone for tuning in and being intentional about improving your emotional intelligence. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or even on our website at www.breakingthechain.online.